Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcast, radio, and social audio converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. I'm interested, like, I want to start with a story about Canadian politics is not boring. <laughs> but let's start there. I'm just curious about this sort of genesis of, I know you've worked in years in BBC and radio, but I want to start with that particular story. Tell us about that. I'm really curious. I think it's quite a, an interesting insight into where podcasts could go. I moved to Canada like three years ago, just over three years ago now. And my career for the BBC and in TV and radio and everything was, was largely comedy um, and documentary and documentary and comedy mixed together. And I came to Canada and I was, I was kind of like uh, that kind of lifestyle and that production style had been so demanding that I was ready just to have a chilled life. And I didn't know whether I was going to do any production work again. I, it was just, it was a reset for, for me and my family. And I realized quickly that I still had skills and experience that I could use, but it was largely kind of dry corporate work, you know, really great clients and everything, but it wasn't necessarily feeding my my hunger for doing comedy. And as time went on, I slowly realized that I needed an outlet to to make people laugh. I'd had it for 10 years and mm. it's almost like, an, it's like, it's very addictive. If you know you can make stuff that gives people a chuckle and you can like lighten their day and, and kind of entertain them, it's, it's very hard to turn your back on it. So um, all of my experience had been from being behind the camera or behind the microphone. I'd always worked with other comedians, but I didn't have a lot of resources in front of me. I didn't know a lot of comedians locally. So I was like, do you know what? I'm going to, I'm just going to, I can get this project off the ground faster by um, moving in front of the mic and, and being a voice on it. And my co-host, Jesse, who we started the podcast with, he was a performer. He's done stage shows. His parents were actors. His dad was a very established kind of uh, stand-up comic in on the East Coast of Canada as well. So it came much more naturally to him. And uh, the show was kind of an outlet, really. And uh, as someone who'd kind of left the UK just after the Brexit referendum, I needed to make a conscious effort to stop checking the daily uh, mm -hmm. po politics updates in the UK and, and start engaging with politics in my new country in my, in my you know my new home so the the podcast was a vehicle to learn and then also share my initial reaction to learning about the canadian system of politics but with the intention of attracting an audience of people who also were as clueless as us <laughs> and kind of <laughs> having a conversation that was not your typical uh, it was kind of a the, the podcast is aimed at people who don't like politics specifically mm. in Canada uh, and introduce them to the topic in a way that is hopefully warm and entertaining i guess so when that came to you, landed on your desk, was it, this is the big idea, we want you to co-host, produce this, or was it your idea that you pitched to them? Well, do you know, we, it was initially me and Jesse actually pitched it to CBC um, and we were rejected and we were like, well, let's just do it anyway. And we then started to build an audience way faster than we ever imagined. Um, mm -hmm. And within a couple, within about two or three months of actually launching the show, we'd, be, we'd been on the front page of Apple in Canada. Um, I don't know how the algorithms just kind of had blessed us that day. And then our partner network frequency approached us i think uh so, so some people from the network they they actively listened to canadian shows and they were like we'd really like a politics show on our network um but not one that is covering politics the same way as you know traditional news media so we kind of fitted that bill and 
and we signed up to, to, the, to, to the network with them and we've been with them for just over a year now. Um, and the show has just kept growing um, uh, with their help with, you know, they, they had the advantage of owning 30 radio stations in Canada. So they just put ads for our podcast out nationally on the radio, mm. which was really helpful for marketing um, and also like magazines that they own. And, and as it's quite a large media group and we've, it just kept growing and growing from there. And we we just, I, I can't tell you who it's for, but we, they've just arranged a sponsorship deal for us for a four week period with like mm. a, a major, a major brand that we're really excited about. And I don't think we would have been here without that kind of network partnership, really. That's awesome. Congratulations. It's a bit of a so, ride. <laughs> wow, exactly. So there were a traditional radio syndication network that you partnered up with as opposed to a podcast network per se. Yeah. And, and they like they launched a podcast network a few years ago, I uh-huh. think with the intention of seeing yeah. the writing on the wall that, you know, podcasting and radio, you know, the the, the way the the market's go and they they wanted a stake in, in the podcast game. And they, their remit is very kind of, um, is to nurture kind of Canadian content or like, you know, produce Canadian specific content. So mm. our show was, it was a, you know, like things, things just um, line up sometimes and you're in the right place at the right time with the mm. right podcast, I guess. So. Absolutely. You were the man of the hour. So <laughs> with that kind of, with that kind of setup, do they own the IP of your podcast or do you own it? And like, do they get sort of, you know, real estate on your podcast to advertise and what kind of deal works out in those networks? Cause I'm seeing a lot more people now networks forming, but also people looking at them as an option for the, the audience growth problem, which is, you know, the problem that everybody's facing at the moment. Um, no, we retained the IP because I, I'd had an experience making a TV show that was our idea, but we didn't own the IP for that was uh, uh, an emotional, a period of emotional turmoil for me where it was like, but this was our idea. We should own it. Uh, but, you know, we, we weren't smart enough with uh, with filling in the right contracts at, at the beginning. It was very early on in my career when I was like in my early 20s and we were just excited that someone wanted to work <laughs> at that stage. <laughs> so the, the more jaded, uh, weathered version of me now in my 40s, <laughs> it's very much like no we're keeping the ip so it's, it's a partnership where they um they they put ads on the show and we split the revenue uh they sort that you know they have a team of people who do the ad sales on on, mm-hmm. on the radio and on tv and in the magazines who are actively trying to find brands who want to advertise on the the podcast network and some specific shows um in the instance of the new deal that we were looking at so i think that um networks the network works really well because they they're having conversations with potential advertisers that I could never have, and you know mm-hmm. I don't have a team of people in Toronto, but now we're we're part of a an organization that does, which is really useful. I think I think the growth of networks because the monetization of the platforms and because you now have you know celebrities setting up podcasts. A lot of the I love the kind of amateur era podcasting age of you know mm-hmm. where where everyone was in their in their basement or in their bedroom recording and the as as money is now flown into podcasting it is harder for those shows to grow and kind of succeed which is not impossible but it, you know they're not as visible or it's not as easy to discover them so i think those kind of networks whether they're informal networks whether they're actually kind of like hey we're a group of artists making this show we can have a lot more power together sharing our audiences and promoting mm-hmm. each other i guess it makes sense we might have clusters of these networks that can work together to a common goal you know there's a few that spring to mind that have existed like for instance uh, maxim max fun that network the comedy network in, mm. in in the us um a friend of mine ben partridge has got a show on there he's a british podcaster but his audience he's got a large audience in america and um, their network re- works really well it's it's not 
like like the same kind of network I'm part of. It's it's a, co- a collective of podcasters working mm. together to support each other's shows and things. So however the network is structured and who owns it and, and how it's built, I think I can see more shows kind of pulling their kind of uh, collective power together, I guess. Mm. It would be interesting to learn, for example, how does a young comedian, you know, establish themselves today? If you're, you know, if you were a comedian, you're sort of, default would be doing the gigs wouldn't it but even today you know you look at that as an option it's not really feasible for a lot of people um just because of what's going on and then you know what do you do do you break into tv well that's going to take a lifetime if that at yeah, best. Yeah, yeah. and you look at something like a podcast network and think well maybe that's what i need to do if i'm a comedian i just got to start my own show and like I, you know let's say reese is was advising a young comedian just starting out what would you advise him or her to do in the podcast game if they wanted to break into it today in sort of you know 2021 2022 as well like uh, she chose comedy as a great example because it is one of the most popular genres mm. and one of the most competitive and one of the hardest to kind of rise in but i guess I, I would say before they even started thinking of launching a podcast, I would hunt as many podcasts you can find and listen to as many podcasts you can find and, you know, really engage with their content and, and get a sense of their sense of humor and think, well, I could actually add my humor to this and then send them a really nice email about which episodes you like and what you like about this show and say, can I be a guest? You know, mm. I think that often, you know, the emphasis on launching a podcast, if you put that time and energy, because it does take a lot of time and a lot of effort to launch to develop a show that is going to work first, then also to make it, and then also, you know, to promote it and, and get it to grow. But if you put all that time and effort into appearing on shows that already exist, but um, approach them in a meaningful way where it's not kind of a mass email you send out, it is much more of a, you know, I re- this episode really spoke to me. I really like the dynamic you've got. I, re- you know, they're more likely to reply and go, well, you know, if someone sends me an email about a podcast that I'm working on or about Canadian politics is boring and they've listen and they give you some really insightful thoughts on on what they did or didn't like about it then you pay attention because you appreciate mm. that they've they've engaged with what you've created so I th- i'd say that if if i was a young comedian i would do that and i'm still doing it now to promote canadian politics is boring <laughs> you know it's a, Gigging, whether you're yeah. young or a, you know it, it makes total sense because you can then reach a new audience and then over time you might go do you know what I'm going to go back on that show a year later, but this time I will have a podcast to promote. Mm. I've built an informal network of shows I've been on, and now I can go back on there and promote my show. There's a huge amount of opportunity, even if you don't necessarily um, have a show yet. Yeah, I love this approach. I started uh, just recently, I've been trialing a, a podcast guesting service. Because yeah. I realized that the, you know, for every one podcaster, there are 20 guests effectively. And, you know, like, like you say, I mean, it's a great way to test it out. It's, a, you know, maybe you're not ready for a podcast yet. Maybe you should do a bit of research. Maybe you can kind of get a feel for it. And maybe you can get a feel for what you're good at as well at being a guest, right? And Exactly. It, it is gigging, isn't it? I mean, whether you're a comedian yeah, yeah, or is. a musician, it's going <laughs> yeah. out gigging in the modern sense. Yeah, without hustle. spending money on the petrol, like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sleeping in the bag of the van, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's such a fantastic opportunity and the ROI is huge. I mean, you know, I don't want to, you and I both run agencies, production agencies, don't want to sell ourselves out of our own work, but you know, the ROI on guesting is the highest, I think, because yeah. it's you don't have to produce, you can just 
plug, you don't have to build an audience, right? As well, you plug in and doing it together with a podcast, your own podcast is really the, the win-win, isn't it? And you know, what have exactly. you found from like being a podcast host and guesting in terms of how that's brought traffic across to your podcast? I've seen instances where just being a guest on the right kind of show with the right offer in, I'm trying to work it out in my head. I mean, it's it's kind of at least 15 times the downloads the following <laughs> the day after release because there was you know the show was a lot bigger and just getting the right offering and offering the right kind of style and voice and tone and matching the hosts well. Once you put that kind of level of thought into it, you can you can really entice the audience because mm. you know don't just go on any podcast. You've got to make sure that you kind of almost fit seamlessly with what they what they're doing as hosts and the energy they've got. I think that if you can add to it and make people um you might just get a you know four or five great one-liners in there and and that might be enough to get people to go oh, i'm going to check this person out i, I like mm. i like the i like the the, the sense of humor so I, th I think it i've seen it really overperform in terms of in the right context where you've got when you've got those things right i've done other ones where i got it a bit wrong and it wasn't the right kind of show and it's had zero impact i think mm. that the quality of of that engagement is is a real indicator on you know how how much of an impact it'll have yeah but 15 times yeah you know. <laughs> that's not even 10x i mean so. but the, show, the show the show was massive i was really right, lucky right. to get on it so but it was they, real. that's the point isn't it like you yeah i mean that is the point is that it would take you a lot longer to do that yourself yes maybe you're leveraging yes, exactly. other people and and, and, and yeah. also i think people forget sometimes that people struggle to actually you know, if you've got a regular show to find really good content is a struggle. So if, mm. if someone turns up and they go, Hey, this is me, this is you, this is what I can offer you. They might go, yeah, that's, can you do next week? You know, I, th I think that um, people often forget that even, mm. you know, big podcasts, sometimes people are still doing them alongside their jobs and, you know, the, the, the battle to find good, meaningful content after running a show, a weekly show for two years is real. So, mm. you know, you might, you might turn up at the right time and, and just have the perfect offering for them. Mm -hmm. If you think about comedians and artists, I suppose, in general, that they do spend a lot of time appearing on each other's stuff. I mean, you look at, for example, Joe Rogan, that every next guest is a comedian that's on, on you know, and they've got their sort of regulars, haven't they? They keep the carousel of Joe Rogan, weird and wonderful guests that keep coming back. But, you know, some of those guys have their own podcasts as well commentators on UFC and so on. But that really is a media model that's been around for a while. Yeah. Um, TV is famous for it, right? Especially chat shows. And but there was no sort of sense that in, in podcasting, people were really doing the same. Maybe they just didn't know and they had to learn that this was the model, right? You've got to, I'm thinking more now like host sharing. You know, you, you do mine and I'll do yours or, you know, those kind of things. That, that to yeah. me is sort of really the underserved market right now. And what are you seeing there? Are you doing like any host swaps? Are you doing, um, you know, where you'd go on their podcast, they would come on yours? Are you seeing anything like that in your market that's interesting at the moment? Joe, we've done a lot of joint episodes where it's almost like you merge the two podcasts together huh. and then you both release it on both feeds with me. So you record it together and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. So we've done like hybrid shows where the show is quite similar in style to what we do. Um, and then we'll, you know, we'll both do it as bonus episodes. And I'm one of those people who really loves making bonus shows because we do mm -hmm. like Canadian products is boring, for instance, you know, we do 
a weekly comedy show that is 20 to 30 minutes long. We cover a topic, me and Jesse, we get through it, we put it out. But then I love um, any other kind of like host swaps or anything we do is, is in the bonus content. But also I see the bonus content as a place to experiment because we've established this audience that is um, uh, kind of uh, like, you know, seems to like that weekly show. And we put surveys out to our listeners and the, the you know, overwhelming 94% are like, just keep doing the weekly show, but I will listen to bonus content as well. Mm. So we, we do things like um, we did a Halloween special, which was just reading a story with sound effects and spooky music and just experimenting and doing those kind of opportunities and those swaps. I found it really mm. um if you're giving people the the thing they tune in for, and then you add this extra layer of seeing what sticks. Um, sometimes we were doing improvised commercials for fake products, just just whatever whatever fun stuff you want to throw out there. And we usually then those good ideas that come out of it, or the things that really catch on, we then can bring back to the main show or integrate mm. to the main show. If if we go, do you know what this is? This is this is working. So, mm. yeah, I like that, and that is how we need to think about a podcast evolving constantly you know we can no longer have this i mean you talk about the sort of the amateur diy podcast in the basement that's got us started right but now we're faced with the reality that you look at the numbers now the average listener per podcast has gone down in the last five years because the number of podcasters outstrip the number of yeah. listeners, right? <laughs> exactly. Which is, I mean, you know, you're going to get that at the beginning of any market where there's imbalance. You know, it's like with the book publishing market, self-publishing, there were more, you know, there's much more weighted towards the reader. So if you published on Amazon, you had an audience, but then everybody cottoned onto this idea that you could make money publishing books. And so, yeah. you know, you saw 10x in the growth of books and it's the same with podcasts now right you've seen a massive growth like almost double in the last 18 months so now you've got this problem that you don't have these ready-made audiences and now people have to think about how do i grow an audience because by virtue of having a podcast i don't have one yeah it's now classic back to book publishing is actually writing the book was only half the work right it's the <laughs> hustle that comes yeah, out yeah yeah well, what, what's working for you, not just for Canadian politics, but also the other titles you've worked on, the, the agency titles, in terms of growing audiences, we've got to go beyond, okay, let's do an audiogram and share it on social media. Okay, that's fine. But let's talk about how you really grow an audience and what's working in your experiments in this area. I think the, the most kind of grown that we've made with, with some of the, the, the brands has been um, kind of thinking about the podcast from the point of view of building a community around the podcast. So seeing that the guests that we have on the shows uh, are actually, you know, equipping them with the tools and the resources and, you know, might be audiograms and images to make sure that they can then go out and be really vocal about the fact they were on the show and that they took part and they had a good time and they're now part of this community because they, they, they were on the podcast. That really helps, you know, making sure that anyone who who um, gives you their time is then um, an advocate for the show and, and we'll, we'll talk about it. And then the more guests you have, you kind of build that momentum of, a, a you know, after a year, you've got a community of maybe 50 people who, um, who have been on the show and talked about your show and promoted your show and then extending that community onto those other platforms such as Facebook and wherever you might find your audience or wherever you see them. You know, a lot of really 
successful independent podcasts have closed Facebook groups or they have uh, subreddits or they have, hmm. um, you know, they have these discords running that allow them to kind of have a really exclusive community for their listeners. And I think that having that in mind, because because anyone who launches a podcast saying, I want this podcast is aimed at everyone, you know, they, that's a very hard thing to mm-hmm. do. Because even, even Joe Rogan, you know, he's, uh, people love him and hate, people hate him. You know, he's, um, I, I think that he's the largest podcast in the world, but there's there's more people who wouldn't listen than there are listening. Mm. He's still, you know, in fairness, he's the biggest show. So you can't, anyone who's aiming for that has to understand that, you know, people will not like your show. People will leave terrible reviews, but other people will leave really good reviews. And what you've got to do is focus on nurturing those people who are those really engaged listeners at the top of the listener pyramid who are like going to talk about share with your friends, share with their friends, maybe hmm. buy a t-shirt, whatever it might be, you know, building a community around those people is essential to to any podcast growing um, because they are advocates, they're your team. And part of that is, is understanding the contract you have with them where mm. you're giving them good content um, that speaks to them. And you can't take that for granted because um, if you keep giving them um, and developing the show in a way that um, that that community kind of still feeds off it and enjoys it and celebrates it, then you know your show will grow as that community kind of spreads and, and attracts more like-minded people. Mm. There's a lot of interesting points in there, Reese. The community part, Definitely, you know, that's something that radio did well, wasn't it? Yeah. They, they knew, even to the point about, I mean, you mentioned Joe Rogan. I see that as very blanket approach that he had to podcasting, which is, oh, yes, it wasn't, uh, it, you know, wasn't everybody, but it was very broad. Yeah. That doesn't work anymore. That worked because no. he was Joe Rogan at the beginning, but now it's got to be, Real niches, right? And even like, I mean, you can't crack it in comedy. You've got to be in a niche, right? And you've got to have an underserved market, identify it and go for that. And, you know, you mentioned some really interesting things like the Facebook groups and Discord, for example. And I'm very curious about this area that the way I see it and would like your thoughts on this is that, that, if you were to think about analogies between where we are and where we were in radio and music many generations ago, like, you know, my generation, ye oldies, that if you think of where we are now, you've got like social audio. So you've got like sort of, you know, or just communities, which are, you know, like Facebook groups, um, Discord channels, Clubhouse, et cetera, et cetera. And over here, you've got podcast. And you go back 30 years and that, that maps quite cleanly onto radio and music like you have to have the property which is the ip right which is okay so i own this song and it's going to make ip royalties for 60 years right from now and you need airplay you need get on a radio you need to get the dj to play this thing so we've kind of got this situation emerging where you have this show now you need airplay okay so i need a community i need to get onto facebook group i need to do clubhouse maybe right and yeah go out and hustle that and that sort of seems to be a similar model emerging i'm just wondering like uh you know what's kind of worked for you in that space in terms of the hustle getting out there building community apart from getting on other people's shows have you cracked anything that you thought well that was this is really you know i'm really hacking this at the moment it's really growing <laughs> 
I, I think opening a dialogue with your listeners um, and not seeing them as a mass of an audience, understanding that you know you need that two-way conversation. So, so this week we released a survey for our listeners, just because we're looking at, for Canadian politics is boring specifically at ways we can you know where to develop the show and and you know how do they feel about the commercials we have running on the show and you know um, should we should we have a Patreon and and would people mm. be willing to take part in that before we even just tried it out and launched. It. We we started with the point of view of going well. The last year has been a roller coaster. We built this show, and we can't believe that we've got so many people downloading every week and listening and, and sending us emails and participating in it. That if we're going to start changing the show and developing it, we we need to do it with them. And I think that the the level of um, engagement with that survey was mind blowing. <laughs> And you know, this was just something we shared on our Instagram, and 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 we, it hasn't even been mentioned in in the in the episode. It's not that the episode where we ask people to fill it in drops on Monday, and we've already got more than enough insight from just that social media post. That I can't wait to see what else comes in. So, oh. um, I, I'd say I'd say like really engage with your listenership, share a very simple survey with them. We used um, uh, the Google uh, kind of survey platform. You can build a camera, but it's called off the top of my head. But um, I think that. What um, kind of insights did you get from that? Like, what kind of things just, do they tell you? Just things like, um, I'll, hang on, I'll bring up, I'll, uh, I'll bring up my survey <laughs> so I can give cool. you some idea. So we were asking questions like, "Do you like the weekly format? Would you like a show that was less often but longer mm. and more in depth?" And overwhelmingly, the answer was was no. You know, we we like. I think it was something like ninety four percent of people just wanted the show to to kind of continue mm. uh, with a weekly format. And then we were asking questions like even like simple data. We didn't ask for their names or anything, but it was like you know, what is your age? Where do you live? So we started to build a really good idea of of uh, the fact that most of our audience seems to be clustered in Ontario, which which is which is interesting because if we ever want to do a live show, then mm. realistically we should start with. Toronto because the, the you know we're, that's where we're more likely to sell sell tickets um and then other information like a paywall would you be interested in a paywall uh you know would would you for like an enhanced experience of of bonus shows that nobody else can listen to or a, a monthly live stream where you can hang out with us for a couple of hours and we got you know a good good information on you know yes no and maybe and then also in how much they'd be willing to pay for it as well so uh, and, and then also people could leave comments on how they felt about the commercials we had so far. And a few people said, oh, we don't like them. But overwhelming people, overwhelmingly, people were saying, I like the show. You shouldn't be making it for free. If you can get commercials on, mm -hmm. then I, I support that because you give me a show every week and you should be paid to do that because I listen to it. So it was really interesting. I, as someone who's British and grew up watching the BBC where there were no commercials, I've always, mm. always been kind of, and making TV shows without commercials, I've always been a bit like, oh, my, oh, I'm really worried about how people are going to feel <laughs> about this. You know, um, are they going to reject us because we've, we've sold out to, to a, like a, 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 you know, a monthly razor club or whatever it is. And um, the, the answer was like, no, you know, I'm getting this for free. So if I've got to listen to a commercial, and if it offends me that much, I can skip. It's fine. So I, we were very, very much kind of that information really reassured us about about where we should take the show next. And mm. and also, I hope that the people who are really engaged with the show, the really kind of the listeners who really um, like the show, feel consulted, so that when we do make those decisions, they go, Ah, oh, I was, I played a part in that. I participated in that survey, and they listened to me, and I've helped them develop the show further. Um, you know, I, I think that that has been a real a huge uh, kind of hack for us and, and something to share with other podcasters hmm. and to talk about because 
that audience is smart and switched on and engaged and uh, emotionally attached to what you're doing. So proceeding with their help is you've actually got an, uh, an army of advocates who are there to, to help you and support you, really. Mm. What a great case study. That was a good share, that one. I like it. <laughs> Glad to good. I, I like, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. I, really good. I like it. And that's something to I'll, take on board for people to think about, for sure. I'll share the results with you. Once once the survey is complete, I'll, I'll send it over to you if you yeah, like. Yeah, like just the insights is fine. But I think yeah. Yeah, you've shared already is cool. <laughs> about advertising, I was uh, my sort of pet podcast at the moment that I'm pimping around to people. I'm not involved in it, but somebody pushed it my way and said, check this out. It's really funny. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a comedy podcast, but it's called Dungeons and Daddies. I've heard of it. Yeah. There's five, <laughs> five, well, there's four women and a guy. So four guys and a woman. And uh, they're all sort of of, of an age. Like one's a comedian. One, or one's, you know, one's from media. Da, da, da. They've all got, they've got the backgrounds. Um, these guys are making $170,000 a month from Patreon. Yeah. And, you, you, the, the content is really good. I mean, they they play it live, right? They play Dungeons and Dragons live, and then they kind of act it out, which is funny. And uh, the the thing I really like about it is you go and check it out. Their sponsorship page, they do all the rethroughs, like yeah, in, yeah. In, with humor, you know. So they've got like Honda people like these, yeah, sponsors, yeah. <laughs> but they're just like laughing about this. They just make you know, and I think. That is how you do it, isn't it? If you're going to do a read through, it's like, okay, look, we own this. We're going to do yeah. it in our style. You know, I'm not going to do this in this sort of like BBC presenter style. It's got to be us. And then that is authentic, isn't it? You know, that's pretty cool. If you've got them laughing and doing these sort of dramatic Honda reenactments in role playing style. Exactly. And that's I cool. Think, I think, well, and, and also the audience like guess it, like this, this, this um I, we were just doing some test records for some host red ads for this for this um uh, new kind of project we're doing and it was kind of in fairness the, the they seem to really understand that if we didn't do this in our style and in the tone of the show the audience will just go eh, it's just a normal ad whereas mm. if we if we were like let off the leash and we do it in in the kind of like the dry kind of sarcastic cynical way that we would do an advert and and the audience knew know we would like to do it then the audience is more likely to look at that brand favorably because they're going well they've been playful with this they're letting them mm. kind of make fun of this process and the shows that do that are those shows that I think that, that that's I think that's really like powerful that they're able to do it in their own style and the audience then views them and the brand favorably because they're like ah oh, actually this is just entertaining and I find it quite funny that mm. that they can riff and and do these ads in in their own style. Mm. Yeah, that's the future. It is it totally you know, and I love it the fact that these guys are raking it in doing it as well. So you and, know, and, and also, it's not actually so it's not intrusive as well. No, and, and the thing is, I love the power of that Patreon. They don't need those brands. The, mm. the thing is, the brands have to come to them and go, hey, um, could you talk, you know, here's some money. Could you talk about this? And of course, do it your way. Do what mm. you want because your audience loves it. Because they've got that insurance of the Patreon money, they don't have to compromise or change. The yeah. audience is bought into who they are and what, they, what they've created for what it is. And, mm. and they obviously love it. And it's up to the brands then to do the work. 
the, the mm. brands have to turn up and go, please, can we be on your show? And, you know, please make fun of us and do it in your, do it your way, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, you know, which, which is an amazing, it rarely does that happen. You know, it's an amazing, yeah. I, I love the fact that you can, you know, these very niche specific shows that are just having a good time have found their audience. They have the power, I guess, to kind of really dictate who they work with and, and how they work with them. Yeah. I, I, it's not a comedy riff, but uh, I was chatting with Steve Pratt from Pacific Content. I mean, they're doing some really high quality work out in Vancouver. And uh, he was saying about the, I don't know if you heard the Bring Back Bronco. Yes. The, yeah, you have. Yeah. You know, it's uh, pretty cool. The, yeah. yeah, Pacific Content, the, the, the work they do is amazing. And like yeah. the way they seem to be able to turn a brand story into like just documentary entertainment is amazing yeah they've got some great riders the one they did for ford so I, i'm not you know i know what a ford bronco looks like you know it's the classic pickup truck you've seen in movies and it's very sort of iconic and they were he was saying that they would they had one episode where they had the oj simpson truck right <laughs> uh, that was the one that he was involved in that chase in right the live televised sort of yeah, getaway yeah, yeah. from the police and initially when Ford came to them, they were like, oh no, we can't do that one. But they said, look, you've got to do the OJ Simpson episode because that's what people want to talk about, right? And that's, you know, and you think just like being playful with the brands in the old days, nobody would let you do that. Oh, we've got to hide that one, right? And no, the actual no. episode itself is they have, they go to some like, you know, auto bill, automobile museum and, you know, like they're everywhere in US, obviously. And they've got, this Ford Bronco, which is actually parked next to Ted Bundy's Volkswagen, which he used to stash dead bodies. And they're talking about this stuff, right? And this is all on the Ford podcast, wow. right? I, I love the idea that these brands can kind of like be authentic and very, you know, very much lose control, let go, seed control is the word, I suppose. And it, it's very rare and refreshing. Yeah, and I, I imagine you've got experience with it, working with ad agencies, and and my experience with ad agencies is that, you know, there's always a lot of control and shaping mm. of the message, and and that you know sometimes it can be painful for them to understand the podcast world, uh, and I know that we've we've tried so hard with some agencies to kind of show them like pitch ideas and go hey, and this is how it works, and and the kind of the ability to kind of relinquish that control and, and mm. understand the effect is the effectiveness of giving the the reins to the podcasters who know their audiences because they, they they you know they don't want to uh, mess up this relationship they they want to promote the brand but they want to do it in a way that is endearing to their audience and i think that as i think advertising is now coming around to that but the, the traditional agency model is about controlling and shaping mm. the message and this is the antithesis of that this is here's some free stuff here's some money uh, test the products out and talk about it and that's going to be terrifying for some people in that traditional model like <laughs> oh yeah i want to see that one blow up but there you go it's like i mean you know the old days when the the housewife stands on the the port or, or the, the she stands at the door and the guy's pitching wider than white laundry detergents them right yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah it's all actors isn't it i mean but now exactly. we're dealing with real people that's the point isn't it advertising has used proxies for the longest time you know that burger chain uses a clown right it's not a real person and now we're in this world where brands have to not only do everything you say which is you know like allow people to have their say and like really 
have their version of the story, if you like, but also their own people have to have a human face and a voice, right? And that terrifies a lot of people. But yeah. I think it's an, it's an exciting time. I'm loving it. I'm loving some of this stuff coming out at the moment. And it's still the minority, but more of it. So come on, Reese. Like, we need more. Let's get out <laughs> there. Let's, let's, let's start the revolution with these guys. I am so desperate to talk to you about the thing that I got going on because <laughs> I'd love to share that something we're doing. We just call the it the thing. thing. Just the thing. But as of next month, it will be a thing that is public uh, <laughs> so I can talk to you. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having to come back and share the insights after oh. being on this weird, weird roller coaster. <laughs> oh man, yeah. You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co., to get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.